Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Well, we are in a series in Romans chapter 8, entitled 8, 8 Words That Will Change Your Life. And uh, this week we uh, have the second installment of this great, great chapter. We said last week that of all the chapters in the entire Bible, Romans 8 probably is it's probably the center. It's probably if you had one chapter that you had to go on a desert island and read, and that's all you had, it would be Romans chapter 8. It's a great, great chapter, and we're going through it sequentially and a verse at a time, and glad that you're here with us. Now, let me start off by asking a question. Do you know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron has nothing to do with the intelligence or lack thereof of a head of cattle. An oxymoron is when you put two words together or two concepts together. And they just don't seem like they fit. You know, they're just things that they don't seem to work together. And I was thinking about it this week, and we use phrases. We use, you know, we refer to certain things that just don't seem to fit. You know, things like jumbo shrimp. I mean, you know, jumbo shrimp, they're two opposites. They don't seem to fit together. Or working vacation. I'm going on a working vacation. Well, it's not a vacation if you're working, right? So that is considered an oxymoron. A healthy tan. You get cancer from sitting in those beds and from sitting out in the sun too long, you get a nice healthy tan. How many times has somebody said to you, well, we're almost ready? Almost ready? I went to a uh, car dealership about a year and a half ago now with you know minor accident, and uh, he said, this is a pretty accurate estimate. A pretty accurate estimate. That's an oxymoron. A new classic, a book that's being written. This is sure to be a new classic. Adult children. Or in New Jersey, especially, affordable housing. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Hospital food is if you spend any time in the hospital, you know that that's, that's probably an oxymoron. Almost done. Almost done. Or when someone's taking a picture, they say, act naturally. Act naturally. You're not natural if you're acting. Or, I've heard this many times, I read it all the time, an amicable divorce. What is that? An authentic replica. This is an authentic replica of the, of the uh, Constitution of the United States, which means it's a copy, an authentic replica. Artificial grass, assistant supervisor, Amtrak schedule. That's the one I came up with all by myself, okay? Dell Tech support. I'm, yeah, I'm just kidding. That's, uh, that's, it is an oxymoron. But anyway, those who work for Apple are happy I said that one. Anyway, listen, Bob Smithhauser, who writes for Plugged In Magazine, wrote about a time when he was living in New Jersey. He was just a little bit out of college, a year out of college. And his employer at the time decided that he was going to send a young artist from the company to a workshop uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So on the morning of the conference, they drove to Newark uh, International Airport. And Jim Smithhauser's co-worker that was traveling with him was rushing a couple of steps ahead of him with, you know, all the things that they needed for the meeting. And he wrote that for the first time, he wrote this in Plugged In Magazine, as they walked through the terminal, and the guy was a couple of steps ahead of him, he got a good look at him. He wrote this. He said, my creative colleague wore a striped shirt, 
not tucked in, and what looked like red pajama pants sporting dozens of tiny images of George Jetson and his cartoon dog, Astro. The guy's got a striped shirt, he's wearing pajama pants with George Jetson and Astro. Jim's socks didn't match. His sneakers didn't match. His blonde hair coughed in a mane similar to the pop star, Daryl Hall. Do you remember Daryl Hall? Some of you probably remember that. Earrings hung from both lobes at a time when few men wore them at all. And there I was, conservatively clothed in a white shirt, dark tie, navy slacks, and shiny black shoes. Jim, I laughed. No one's going to believe we're together. Well, they got to Pittsburgh International Airport, and they uh, knew the name of the hotel they were going in, but they didn't know how to get there, so they were collecting their bags, and they went out to the curb, and they were trying to find a knowledgeable taxi driver or, you know, someone to take them to the uh, hotel, and they were about 10 yards apart when out of the corner of Smithhouse's eyes, he said he saw two men approach this guy, Jim, who he was traveling with. They were undercover narcotic officers. And he said, he wrote this, he said, Jim's jaw dropped open like a cheap suitcase. And Bob Smithhauser hurried over and was greeted by a barrage of questions about their ID, their destination, the purpose of their trip, so on and so forth. While his friend Jim in the, you know, George Jetson pants was just frozen with fear. So finally, after bringing out brochures and conference literature, hotel reservations, the whole thing, the agents were, you know, they were satisfied. Their curiosity was satisfied. And as they softened, one of the agents looked at Smithhauser and said, sorry for the inconvenience, gentlemen. You just seem to be an odd pair traveling together. And Smithhauser wrote this. Now, this is a magazine, The Young Adults. He said, we were a walking oxymoron to the interested observer These two guys just didn't fit together. Now, it leads him to say, and he wrote this at the end of the article, I thought of that episode after reading reports stating that the media habits of Christian young people don't differ much from those of their unsaved peers. I couldn't help but wonder if God ever observes young believers on their spiritual walk, sees the entertainment they're choosing, and thinks, you seem to be an odd pair traveling together. Now, as I said, Plugged In Magazine is written specifically to a youth culture, but I think his observation can be applied to anybody of any age. God's desire for his children is outlined in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, which says this, you are to be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. It was one of the verses that we sang just a little while ago in one of the songs, you know? Shine like stars in the universe. God's desire for us is to shine as brilliant stars against the darkened background of a dark and decaying culture. But often because our traveling companions are right next to us, the brightness, I think, becomes obscured, and people are left to feel and grope their way in the darkness. Now, Christine Wicker, in her book, The Fall of the Evangelical Nation, shows why she believes, and I have to say happily so, she's not an evangelical at all, far from it, in The Fall of the Evangelical Nation, she shows why she believes that evangelical Christianity is dying in the United States. 
She shows data that says a thousand evangelical Christians are walking away from their churches every day. You know, we hear all the time, oh, they planted this church, and this church is, oh, it's exploding, and this, that, and everything. Net, a thousand evangelicals are walking away from the church every single week and never coming back. Church experts told her, as she she was preparing to write her book, and she did a lot of interviewing, church experts told her, don't look at who's coming in the front door. Look at who's walking out the back door. Now, one successful megachurch pastor who she interviewed told her this. He said, figure out why we're not converting anyone. I believe if Jesus were to return and rapture his people, 50% of the people here would show up on a Sunday morning and say, where did everybody go? In her chapter, Sinners, One and All, she wrote this about evangelicals. Now, evangelicals for her, this was her definition. Evangelical was someone who has trusted Jesus as personal Savior as the only way to heaven and who believes the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. Okay? That's the evangelical. In that chapter, she said evangelicals, quote, are pretty much regular folks in attitudes and deeds. They do a lot of things they shouldn't do and have attitudes their preachers wouldn't approve of. They aren't set apart from the rest of the country in nearly the way evangelical leaders would like us to think they are. Now, when pollster George Barner looked at 70 moral behaviors across the board, he didn't find any discernible difference between the actions of those who were evangelical Christians, born-again Christians, and those who weren't. For instance... His studies showed that divorce among born-agains was as common or even more common than other groups. And guess who was leading the way? Baptists. Top of the list, 29%. Josh McDowell stated that evangelical kids are only about 10% less likely to engage in premarital sex. One report said that of the 2.5 million kids that signed the Southern Baptist Abstinent Pledge, True Love Waits. Have you heard about True Love Waits being on for a number of years now? It shows that only 12%, only 12% kept their promises by their own admission. Mark Regnaris, a professor of sociology at the University of Texas, found that evangelical teens lose their virginity slightly younger than mainline Protestant and Catholic teens, 16 years, 3 months, to 16 years, 7 months, and are much more likely, 13.7% more likely, to have three or more sexual partners by age 17 than mainline kids, 8.9%. The number of evangelicals who have had or are having sex outside of marriage is so large that some evangelicals are now talking about, there's a new phrase out there, reclaiming your virginity through repentance, which is a very good spiritual idea, but you know what? It's not a very likely physical happening. Let's just say it that way. Waiting rooms and abortion clinics are populated with women who now claim to be evangelical. In fact, one in five in abortion clinics claim to be evangelical. Now, I read that statistic, and I got to tell you the truth. I didn't believe it. I said, you know what? You could, you know, you torture facts enough, they'll say anything you want them to say, right? I said, this has got to be one of those times. So I called the director of a local crisis pregnancy center, and I said, you know, I read this statistic, 20%, you know, it's not true, right? And this person said that for the 20 years they have been in their center counseling women, he said about 17% are born-againers. 17%. Now, these are not women who only claim to be Christians, but when they were, are pressed for their spiritual beliefs and commitments, they said they were, they checked the box, Christ followers. Christ followers. 
Another disturbing statistic showed that evangelical men were no less likely to beat their wives than other men. And folks, when I look at this, I say to myself, it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. Now, last week, we spoke about bad news, worse news, good news, great news. Right, if you weren't here, let me give you a one-minute thumbnail sketch as we looked at verses 1 through 4. The bad news, we stand condemned. Because why? We have suppressed the truth of God, which is evident, Romans 1 says, to everybody. You can know something about God. You can know about his power. You can know that he is a moral God. You can know that he's an order God. You can know that he's a great God. There's something you can know just by going outside and looking at the sky because of what God has planted in your conscience and because of history. As we look at history, how it's unfolded. We can see God, okay? Now, the bad news is we have suppressed that knowledge. And because we've suppressed the knowledge, we've become fools. Now, the bad news gets worse. It's worse because we find in Scripture, I cannot save myself. We, we, we would like to do the right thing. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 7? The thing I want to do, I end up not doing, and end up not doing the very things I want to do. See, as hard as he tried, when he looked at the law, it almost was that the law and black and white before him was mocking him. It was saying, you know, don't do this and do this. Okay, uh, and he came to the conclusion, what a wretched man I am. The bad news gets even worse when you know, you know what? You will never come up to the standard. But then all of a sudden it gets good. And God, through his son's sacrifice, has provided a way that I can escape condemnation, be acceptable, be accepted, and treated by God as if I had lived the life that Jesus lived and died the death that he died. And so when God looks at us, he looks at us through Christ-colored glasses. That's who he sees. And we don't have to pay for our own sins anymore. And we become, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, the righteousness of God in him. And now, Romans 8 chapter 1, what? There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 7 is saying we are capable of tremendous evil. And immediately after, it says at the same time, simultaneously, actually, if you're in Christ, none of that can ever bring you into condemnation in regards to God, if you're in Christ. None of it. And then you get to the great news. Good news, right? That's good. And then you get to the great news. And that's, I can experience true freedom now and forever. Not because God is merciful. Not because God is faithful. Not because God is kind or full of grace all of that is true, but because God is just, and he is faithful and just, legal term, legal term, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that when we sin for the 473rd time, and you know what, Jesus doesn't go to, to the Father and say, look, at, I mean, this, this guy, he's just, he's just a screw-up. I mean, what can I tell you? I'm trying to work with him, and, and you know, please, one more chance, one more time. That's not it. The son says to the father, you must forgive this one who is in me. That is the only just thing to do because those sins have been paid for and they don't have to pay for them ever again. See, that's great news. That's great news. And so now, because of that, we can be inspired to live a life that is holy and pleasing to the one who gave everything for us. Amen? Amen. But somewhere along the line, <laughs> things get screwy, right? 
Something happens along the line. Why? I just read those statistics. It's not working out like that. We started living lives that became oxymoronic. Is that a word? I don't think it is, but I just made it up, okay? Oxymoronic lives. We've struggled for years with particular sins or deficiencies of character, and as hard as we've tried, they've never been done away with. Maybe we're not living in gross sin, but it seems that many Christians have given up attaining a life of holiness, and somewhere along the way, as one writer put it, quote, have settled down to a life of moral mediocrity where neither they nor God are pleased. In spite of the fact of the strong commands of Scripture to live a consistently holy life, we live in the great, frustrating, moral middle ground. Why? That's the question for the morning. That's the question in the time we have left. I think it comes down to this. We forget who we're traveling with. We forget Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. We forget that we now travel with a different set of truths, with different desires for us, which lead to life that is full and that in engaging and expanding. And instead, we go back to live under the old system with its desires, with always, always, always lead to death. Just two points. Two points this morning. The desire of the flesh and the desire of the spirit. Well, what is the desire of the flesh? Well, the desire of the flesh is to save yourself. I mean, when you cut away everything, that's what basically, that's what we're talking about. Everyone lives under one or two systems that they operate in. And there are specific truth claims and there are specific desires in each of those systems. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And here he comes now. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It says, those who live in the flesh, according to the flesh, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. One word mentioned a few times there, right? Desires. Desires. Each system has a set of desires. We all have desires. Everybody here has desires, okay? We all have them. We have desires to feel and be, not just feel, but be significant, don't we? We want to feel that there's something. Yeah, it's somewhere between Sunday and Saturday, we're doing something of worth, right? I mean, significance. At least it could break it on any given day, something that has meaning. We have desires to be appreciated. You know, we love it when the teacher, you know, you're a student, the teacher says, you know what, sometimes I got an A. And I remember when I was a kid, they did that one, one time. Just, it, was, it was one time. That's why I remember it. Timmy got an A. And I was like, oh, baby, you know, bring it on. Bring it on. I mean, we love that, right? Everybody loves that. When someone comes up to you and says, you look great. Would you yell at them? You tell them they're stupid? You go, yeah, thank you. Right? We love that. We love to be complimented. We love to be appreciated. We love to be loved. Okay. We love to be loved. In fact, the thought of not being loved, the thought of not being appreciated on some level is almost intolerable. 
We almost can't even stand it. We need to know that someone cares. We need to, we need to know that or, you know, we just shrivel up and die. We have a desire for significance, that we do something well, you know, that we have some sort of talent that is needed. And beyond that, we have a need to be truly, as I said, appreciated, which builds our self-esteem. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel fine. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said to yourself, and, and you really mean this, you are the biggest idiot I know. How'd that make you feel? Not good. Not good. We want to be saved. You know, in a theological sense, but way beyond that, we want to be able to say, you know what? Okay. I'm okay. Things are moving along. I have significance. I have meaning. Now, in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, when Paul talks about the flesh, he mentions it time and time again. He's not talking about the physical body. Sometimes when he talks about the flesh in other spots, he is talking about the physical body, not here. He's talking about core desires, legitimate core desires that you and I have that will seek to be met, you know what, by any means possible. But you know what? When he talks about the flesh, it's always being met in an illegitimate way. It's always being met in a way that's going to bring more hardship than you know, we could ever imagine. And that will not fulfill the desires of our heart. When Paul talks about living according to the flesh, he's addressing a core desire at the heart of every human being, and that is to know and to feel that they are okay, that they're acceptable, that they're loved, that they're esteemed, that they're valued, that they're needed. He's talking about, when he talks about the flesh, saving ourselves. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about doing something or some things that will make it all right, that will meet, we feel, the burning desires for all those things, very legitimate things, will meet the desires in our heart. Now, the fact of the matter is everything we do, including our actions, including all our attitudes, is controlled by our efforts to save ourselves. Everything we do to, to be acceptable to be loved. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. Now, you know, the mind, have their mind set, that word, Greek words there. Uh, you got to be aware of something. Uh, when we're talking about the mind, let's, let's just unpack it for one second. First of all, the mind and the heart are not two different things in Scripture. If for us, you know, when you talk about the mind, what are we talking about? Cognitive development and understanding. And how would you do in your IQ test? We're not talking about the heart. We're talking about the mind, right? When we talk about stuff like that. The Bible doesn't know that distinction. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. It puts them together. The mind and the heart are, are a way of saying the core of someone's being, the center of someone's being. Therefore, when Paul says, set your mind on, you know, that some people have set their mind on the flesh. He's not just saying that we have occasional bad thoughts or even regular bad thoughts. He's not even talking about thoughts. What he's saying specifically, what he's saying is the mind is not merely to the intellect. It is the basic direction of a person's will. It is everything about them going in one direction. And he's asking you and he's asking the reader, his people that he's writing to, to look at themselves and to recognize what preoccupies them. Let me ask you, what preoccupies you? What, what engrosses you the most? What, what, what has your heart? What really has your heart? Okay. What are your dreams? Where do they reside? What is captured 
What has captured your imagination? What most preoccupies and engrosses the very core of your thinking and your dreaming and your fantasizing and your heart and your mind? When you're sitting in class and you're doodling in the margins, they still have notebooks, right? Not everybody's on computers, right? Is that right? Okay. When you're sitting, you know, I used to sit there and just do all kinds of doodles. And then one time the the professor did a, a... a, a surprise that hand in your notebooks right now and I had all pi- I had pictures of him I was drawing him <laughs> and he wrote all things next to it but I didn't do well in that assignment but you know because I, di- I, I, I didn't listen that much I just you know it was like I was bored it was like this that you know anything, anything moved you know but basically when you're sitting in class and you're writing and pretending that you're listening I mean what are you, what are you writing in the margins whose initials are you writing in the margin what pictures are you drawing in the margins See, it's not merely the intellect. It's, it's everything. It's always with you. What is always with you? What has captured you? Paul says, whatever that is, that's how you're trying to justify yourself in the flesh. That's how you're trying to prove yourself. That's how you're trying to develop your own sense of worth and value. That's how you're trying to do it. Therefore, that's your way of being your own Lord and Savior. That's it. That thing, those things, that object, that person, that in your heart is what you really believe will save you. Now, you know, it makes perfect sense because that's, the why that, that's, that's really the reason why people are driven to the top of the corporate ladder. Just absolutely, they, they just almost everything, everyone's telling them, you know, you're going to stop, you're going to have a heart attack, you know, what's your cholesterol, it doesn't matter. Because this is what's driving them. Uh, And I'm not talking about doing a good job and by God's grace taking on more responsibilities if things fall right. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a drivenness to succeed. It's why you must get an A on every single paper and assignment. You must. And if you get a B plus, you're frothing at the mouth. It's the professor. It's this. It's that. It wouldn't play the TV so loudly. It's not a good study. You blame it everybody. Everybody and anybody. It's why you must be in control at home, at the office, on the road, when you're driving, in the bedroom, in any situation you find yourself in, you got to be in control. And you must be loved. Or at least you have to somehow approximate the feeling of love, even if you know you're fooling yourself. Even if you know you're fooling yourself. Douglas Moo said this. He said, broadly speaking, Paul's use of the word flesh is a condition natural to people in which God and the spiritual realm are left out of account. They're left out. In other words, the sinful nature, the flesh, is the old approach that says you can save yourself if you have this, if you get this, and if you don't, you can't, if I have him, if I have her, if I have it. And when you travel with the flesh, you will find out right away that it comes with a huge set of desires. The flesh has desires that says, I can meet those desires. It's the motivational structure. It's how it's put together. Here's the flesh. Here are the desires that come with the flesh. And it gives you all these illegitimate ways to fulfill those desires. And when we start going towards those desires and trying to fulfill those desires, all of a sudden we find out many times too late. And we have all kinds of scars and lashes and cuts. And we need surgery and all kinds, emotionally on our heart. And we realize, you know what? That wasn't it at all. That wasn't it at all. Why are you tempted? Why? Why? Why are you a liar? Why? Why are you driven? Why are you continually in a frenzy 
and worried? Why are you afraid? And it's not enough to say, you know what? Stop being tempted. Grow up and don't be afraid. Stop worrying. Don't lie. Don't hit. Don't do this. Don't break that. It's not enough. You got to go deeper. You got to say why. And the answer is, you think if you don't do this, or if you don't get that, or if you don't avoid this, or if you don't avoid that, you will be condemned. You'll be condemned. See, you'll lose it all. One author put it this way. He said, the sinful nature is the part of the heart that doesn't believe there is now no condemnation. See, it doesn't believe that. The truths we choose to travel with will determine our destiny. It always will. What about the Spirit? The desire of the Spirit. You know what the desire of the Spirit is? Let God save you. Let God save you. Those who live according to the flesh, verse 5 again, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You start traveling with the Spirit, it comes with a whole different set of desires and legitimate ways for them to be met. I remember uh, 1981, I was in, uh, just started Denver Seminary. And uh, a friend of mine and I were, were invited to see a new movie that was coming out in a few weeks. And they invited a bunch of seminary students and they invited some pastors in the area and Christian workers. And basically, they, they said, we want your advice. They didn't want our advice. Basically, they wanted us to come and we, hopefully we're going to like the movie and we'll tell everybody to go see the movie, right? I mean, that, you know, we're not stupid. We, we figured that out pretty easy on. So we came together with, you know, I came with all these religious workers and all these seminary students. And we sat and watched the movie. And the movie was Chariots of Fire. Do you remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Okay, 1981. And I, I came out of the movie and I loved it. Absolutely loved Chariots of Fire. It was a true story of two British men, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell, who won gold medals for Britain in the 1924 Paris Olympics. If you haven't seen the movie, go out and see it. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, Eric Liddell went on to become a missionary. After the 1924 Olympics, he went on to become a missionary in China, and he died in a detention camp during World War II in China. Very godly man. Eric Liddell had a very, very, <laughs> putting it kindly, eccentric running style. Any running coach who he would train under nowadays would, the first thing they do is they would correct his running style because there's no way I'm not even training, I'm not wasting my time with you. Whenever Eric ran, he would run and he would be flailing his arms. <laughs> he flailed his arms and he had his head straight up and his mouth wide open. And people looked at him, and he looked, he looked deranged. I mean, the guy actually, he looked crazy. But he wasn't crazy. You know what he was doing? He was worshiping. He was worshiping. Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell were both setting their minds on the same thing. They wanted to run, and they wanted to win, and they wanted to win the race, but for totally different reasons. Because when Harold Abrams is asked in the movie, why are you running? He says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's a lot of pressure. What he's saying is, only if I could win this race, if I can be an accomplished athlete, then I know I matter. Then I can face the world because I've accomplished something. And there is one spot in the movie when he loses a preliminary race. It's, it's just a great scene from the movie. He loses a preliminary race leading up to the Olympics, and he's sitting with his girlfriend in the stands, and he is absolutely inconsolable. He is just, he, he can't even talk. He's just, 
He's twisting. He's turning. He's, he's just, you know, and he's looking over. He sees the race as it had gone on a couple of hours before. There's another scene in that movie with Eric Liddell with his sister, Jenny. And she is concerned. They're working at a mission. His sister and, and Eric Liddell worked at a mission, father's and mom's mission. And she is concerned that his head is getting so filled with Olympics and running and all this stuff, and it's taking up too much time, and it's taking you know, his, his work and his mind away from the mission that they're involved in. And she finishes, and he looks at his sister. He says, Jenny, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Here are two men operating under two different systems that have two completely different sets of desires. The one is running to bring praise to his Savior, which is the chief desire of the Spirit of God, by the way. The other is running to become his own Savior. Here's one guy who's running for the sheer joy of it. If he wins, great. If he doesn't win, great, because he already knows he's justified. He already knows he's acceptable. His life is justified. And the other guy who's running in continual grinding anxiety and fear, because if he fails, he is lost. He's lost. In the end, Harold Abrams does win the race. But if you saw the movie, even after he wins... He's unsatisfied. Do you know why? Because idols never deliver. They never meet the desires of your heart. Never. They only deliver, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, death. To the mind on the flesh, it's not just having bad thoughts. It's essentially to put your mind and your heart on something besides Jesus Christ as your functional Savior. Two lives going in diametrically opposed direction, one towards death, suicidal, spiritual death. Verse 6 says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, death of every dream, death of every legitimate desire placed in the heart of men and women by God himself. The mind of the other, well, it's towards life, always drawing nearer to heaven even though it's still on earth. The gospel says, what is functioning in the place of Jesus Christ in your life? That's what the gospel says. They always ask the same question. You go over the gospel 100,000 times. We ask it 100,000 different ways. What is acting in the place of Jesus Christ in your life? What are you really relying on? And this is the question we have to ask ourselves all the time. What are we really relying on to save us? What is the thing that we are really, really relying on to save us as Harold Abrams was looking to running and winning races to save him? What is it? How are we trying to get relief from a sense of condemnation? Let me ask you something. How do you react when something goes wrong in your career? How do you react when the test doesn't come out? When you hear a negative health report or a relationship, are you furious? Are you paralyzed? Are you despondent? Do you find yourself literally falling apart at the scene? If so, you may be looking at the thing that you are relying on on to save you, to justify you, to give you a sense of belonging and love and acceptance that you know what? The world was never meant to give you. It was never meant to give you. There's always something underneath our inordinate, out-of-control problems and desires and patterns and attitudes and emotions. It's always down there. It's always under the surface. And until you find it, you will never have life and you will never have peace. And you will never 
calm down. Till you find it, you will continue to be falling apart. That's called death. But when we follow the Spirit and His desires become our desires, the restlessness begins to calm down. Right now, if you were honest, would you say, I am a professing Christian, technically? Technically, I believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Technically, I believe I'm loved. Technically, I believe I'm justified. But you know what? Now that you mention it, I think I may be relying on something else to save me. I think maybe I am. I know I should look at the God of all the universe who loves me and sent his son to take the punishment from me. I know I should look at him and see that he gives me a check mark and that there is no condemnation and I am acceptable in his sight and say, you know what, that's enough. But I got to tell you, if I'm really honest, it ain't true. It's really not true. It's not enough. I really do care more about what the neighbor, what the boss, what the teacher says than I do what he says. The boss and, 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 and the teacher and the neighbor and the spouse, their weight carries more weight than the Lord's words. The words of men and the opinion of men really, really go a lot further in my mind than what God has said and what he thinks. I know what the word says is right, but I think I believe it more in my head than I do in my heart. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want or cannot do whatever you want. The truths we choose to travel with will determine our destiny, folks, today and forever. Can you say today, There is something I have made all important in my life besides Jesus. There's something I believe will save me from condemnation when only Jesus can do that, and I know he's already done it. Can you look at that thing today? Can you look at that one thing today and say, you are not my life, you are not my salvation, you are not going to be what keeps me from condemnation? Are you ready to say that? Are you ready? In John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to take the things I'm telling you, the things I'm telling you right now, guys, and he will take my teachings and he's going to manifest them to you. In other words, he's going to fill them out. I'm giving you the pencil sketches and he's going to fill them out. You're going to understand. You're going to think about it. You're going to chew on it. You're going to look down deep into it and things are going to start to make sense and I'm going to start to make sense. Even though right now you're looking at me and going, yeah, you know, I, I guess, maybe, you know what? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Well, I don't know what the heck that means, but, you know, I get. All of a sudden, he'll start filling in those things in your life. That's what he says. Uh, they're not going to be words on a piece of paper. You may say, that's okay, but the Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus real to you. And the only way we're ever going to have self-control, the only way we're ever going to forgive our boss, the only way I'm ever going to... Stop worrying about money, uh, be able to handle rejections in my life. The only way I can walk through life at large, which is pulling me down, is I need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to make what Jesus has done for me so real that I begin to weep at its beauty. And that's going to replace all the other core beliefs, you know, that I'm trying to push to the center of my being. That's what happens when Jesus becomes bigger. That's how we change. The truths we choose to travel with 
will determine our destiny now and always. In 1878, Victoria, the Queen of England, she was ruling then, Victorian age, you've probably read about that, and her third child was a little girl by the name of Alice, Princess Alice. And Alice had married a king who was, uh, grew up, married a king who was one of the kings of a small German state, and they had a number of children, but several of them contracted what was then called black diphtheria. And uh, after one of uh, their little girls died, this was Queen Victoria's granddaughter, her daughter Alice was, was they were horrified. They're absolutely horrified. And then all of a sudden, the youngest child, a little boy, was diagnosed with the same illness. And the doctors told Alice, they said, you cannot come near this child. Just forget about it. You can't even come into the room. We put a nurse, we put a nanny in the room to watch after him. You and the king are absolutely banished from this room. You cannot stay with him ever. This is highly contagious. Don't even go around him. Well, Princess Alice was standing at her son's bedroom door one day when she heard the little boy in his sweet little voice ask his nanny, why doesn't mommy ever kiss me anymore? With that, Alice threw the door open, ran into the room, and began to smother her son with kisses and to hold him and to hug him. Within one week, she was dead of black diphtheria. They buried her that week. Let me tell you something. You were dying. I was dying eternally because of our sins, because of our transgressions, because we have suppressed the truth of God like our nation is doing now. And we were lost. And we cried out. We just cried out. If... There's a God. If, if you're the, I don't know, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. I don't know if, you know, I thought that was all stories. But if there's a God in heaven. And God somehow came and he touched you and he heard your cry. And he ran down to you and he took you in his arms. And he smothered you with kisses and with his grace. And it took his death to do that. Those who have been saved many times continue to try to save themselves through the flesh. And you know what Paul says? Paul says, that's a very odd picture. You have chosen a very odd traveling companion to go through life with. A Christian walking according to the flesh, Paul says, is an oxymoron. You're just an odd pair to be traveling together. It just doesn't fit. Folks, it was never supposed to fit. It was never supposed to fit together. We were made for better things here on earth. We were made for better things forever. The truths we choose to travel with will determine our destiny now and forever. 